Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Quality Under Pressure podcast. Uh, I am Dawson, and I've got Min with me. Dean had a roll out, but we just finished up a conversation with Sarah and Sean. Yep. Uh, Min, what'd you think? What'd you take away? You had a pretty deep conversation with Sarah on this one. Yeah, I thought we were going to get to both of their topics. So Sarah focuses mostly on industrial agriculture and Sean climate change. And I, and I really wanted to get to both. Um, but we sort of uh, dove deeper into Sarah's topic because she has this new organization that she started. So she introduced, introduced that. Um, but then we try to sort of get to like what are little things that the average person can do um, to sort of combat um, this just sort of the, the evils of industrial ag. Yeah, and I think for me it's cool because as being a heavy meat eater, a carnivore, if you will, uh, she didn't make me feel bad about being a carnivore, which yeah. is something you don't normally run into. Um, so, yeah, keep an eye out for that and head over to our website. It's uh, twogreenerpastures.org, and uh, check out the show. Thanks. Welcome to the Quality Under Pressure podcast, a podcast that reminds you that a conversation is still a beautiful thing. My name is Min, and I am joined in studio by my two co-hosts, Dawson and Dean. It's been a while since we've all three been in the room. That's right. I'm back. You can't You're get back. rid of me. You're back. And today we are going to have a conversation with, well, it's interesting because Sarah and I met in grad school, and Sean and I met through a basketball league. So we, I met both of them independently, and it turns out... They're married. <laughs> so welcome to the studio, Sean and Sarah. Yeah, hey. How are you guys? Great. Good. 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 Well, thank you for making time and hopping on today. I'm excited. Um, do you guys, are you going to talk about the same topic, Sean, or something else? I think so. I think we're going to talk a little bit about the same topic. So okay. We're both involved in social change work, but yeah. different parts of it and kind of learn and support from each other too yeah okay great great because i kind of know the world that you come from because we took qualitative methods together in graduate school and you easily had the best project and best presentation i mean i was blown away i was like let's not because we had like a like a 20 minute time limit on our presentation and i thought if yours went on for the full hour like it the whole room would have just still been captured by it Oh, that's very kind, and due in large part to an awesome research partner, Hannah Ruth. Oh, yeah, she's great. Yeah. Okay, so before we dive into the topic of the day, what we normally do is hit you guys with some questions, um, just to give the audience a taste of like your personality and preferences, so nothing too crazy, um, but we'll do that, and then if you guys could pull the mics a little bit closer, we'll do that, and now I can turn you guys' cool. mics up, too. Great. All right, here we go. Don't think too deeply about it. Uh, question one, what makes a good partner? Tell, tell your partner what makes a good partner. We've never had this scenario before. Uh, good sense of humor. Nice. How about you, Sean? Uh, trust and forgiveness and uh, willing to work things through. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Because uh, I feel like if you have that, like every relationship is going to get into battles. But if you have that... You can always at least work through it. Yep. Yeah. Uh, if you went to college today, what would be your major? Oh, probably film or photography or design. Oh, really? Something visual. I yeah. love that. I would definitely be a history major. Oh, wow. I studied English when I was in college, but um, I'd rather be able to look back and know what happened. Yeah. Apply that to what's happening today. 
Sweet. Yeah. Especially today. <laughs> um, if this thing never existed, would the would the world be a better place? So it's a, pick a thing and that, or pick a thing that you think would make the world a better place if that thing never existed. Wow, that was a really Whoa. convoluted way of well, asking that question. Fast lightning question. Yeah. yeah. I need to hear that one again. <laughs> uh, if pick a thing, if it never existed, would the the world would be a better place? The world would be a better place without this thing. And then I fill in the blank of that. Yeah. Thing. iPhones. Oh, <laughs> nice. Cell phones, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Cell phones or like smartphones? Smartphones. Smartphones. Because if we went yeah. back to like the flip phone, yep. like you think we'd be okay? Yep. Yeah. Because that's like a good connecting piece, right? Kind of. Yeah. It is. I think it is and it isn't. Oh, why, why isn't that one? Well, um, I mean, you replace other forms of communication with the cell phone, right? Yeah. So you spend less time in person with people. You you even you text instead of calling. So Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you would still have the dinner table issue, huh? If you could, like, text people. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is one thing that you've kept from your childhood? I have a big trunk full of all the things. Really? My childhood room. And it's got, like, pieces of dollhouse furniture and old books. And yeah. Essays I wrote. That's great. All sorts of stuff. Yeah, this huge, like, um, like footlocker-style trunk. Yeah. Is it hard to maintain? No, it's all very self-contained. But okay. um, I've pulled the whole thing out and gone through everything. And it's, like, a little... Not little. It's a large, very <laughs> wild, like, capsule of memories in there. Have you moved a lot? Um, I have, and the trunk only made it for the first time from my folks' house to here because my parents actually just moved to Minnesota as well. Okay. Brought the trunk with me, and yeah, it's like childhood in a box. Great. How often do you go through it? I went through it once when we first got it, so it was like a time capsule from not having opened it for like a decade, mm-hmm. and you forget about all the weird things that you've collected and that were important a long time ago, and you look back at it, and now it's mundane, but still like a anchor of a memory. Has Sean seen it? Yeah. It arrived in our house and it's taken up a whole bunch of space. <laughs> <laughs> you sound thrilled. <laughs> How about no, you, Sean? it's cool. It's cool to have, of course. Uh, well, maybe this is, that was my uh, angst because the only thing I could think of is when I was in college, I came home one year from college and my dad had refur- refurnished my room and thrown out every single thing that was in it and cleared out 90% of all the things I had from childhood. Yeah. How about that? Oh, if, so if you could <laughs> get one thing back. Oh, um, well, I had a pretty extensive basketball and baseball card collection. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. You're so a basketball bit, OG. Yeah, from, oh, right, wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so awesome. Okay. Last gone. one I'm going to throw out there. What is one place you would love to visit and why? Well, I mean, I would ch- probably choose a place that I've already been to a few times, but would love to go back, which is the Redwood Forest and the Sequoia Forest in Northern California. Nice. Which is just awesome. Really, really big trees. Have you guys been together? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Did you also enjoy it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just massive. and reminds you how small you are. Yeah. That, like, you can't even get your arms all the way around one side of the trunk. Yeah. Massive. That makes yeah. sense. How about you then, Sarah? A place that you would love to visit? We've been talking about Yellowstone for a little while now, mm. and I, if we're thinking domestic, I'd love, love, love to go to Yellowstone. Okay. Yeah. Great. Well, perfect timing. The music ended right there, too. So let's dive into your topic of the day. Um, do one of you guys want to set it up? I know generally, but if you'll set it up for us, then Sarah. Yeah, sure. So 
Um, one of the things that we talk about a lot and that is just a big part of our daily lives is doing organizing work, doing social change work and um, spending our our time and our labor doing things to try and build the power to push forward on big issues and the thing that we spend a lot of energy on and then also just spend a lot of time just thinking about the brain space of. Yeah. So, yeah. Does it help that um, that you guys are doing it together? Would it seem more daunting if you were doing it alone? Maybe. I think so. Yeah. Um, the, the interesting thing is like the course of us meeting and our relationship is tied to organizing work because we both oh. met while working for an environmental advocacy group and oh, wow. got to work really together for the first time doing organizing work around the 2012 election. And so, um, so it's like very much a part of us, but then also... Um, like with this kind of work, you never know whether what you're doing is making an impact or not. Yeah. So it's nice to have the solidarity and your friendships or relationships or community where you can talk about things and share struggles and debrief and yeah. think about whether what you're doing makes any difference. So that that was the beginning of your guys's well, I, friendship, then romantic relationship. You guys knew you had this in common. So it wasn't yeah. like you met because of you guys mutual friends and then you learn like oh we have the same passions yeah we were both working for the same organization um but on different sides of the country so we met through some through through, um, some work gatherings but then during the 2012 election season we were actually working in the same office together um so i was actually sarah's manager um, for (laughs) for a couple months um we had already started dating long distance and uh, since then, we've actually worked together on a few projects, yeah. um, similar projects where we've either been employed by the same organization or just decided to start our own kind of volunteer project together. Yeah. Um, but I think that we're constantly – I'm constantly getting feedback and learning from Sarah. I mean we just – even just this last week, I had a big event that I was doing and sort of was right in the middle of it. And, you know, you get stressed out about things, but yeah. I can re- – go back to her and rely on her and give me some just great sort of advice and feedback to kind of push through and make it successful so yeah or also like no, under being in the same world understanding the frustrations like mm-hmm. just give someone time to vent and like have mm-hmm. be someone that listens to it mm-hmm. yeah and i think with a lot of folks when they go to their like quote-unquote normal job yeah um you know, like the job is very self-contained and you go in and you do a good job and then you come home and then you have the rest of your life. But when you have these very strong values that dictate how you think the world should be and you go into your work and you spend your work energy trying to foster those values in real life and then you come home, you bring those values with you. And so the work kind of seems to permeate yeah. life. And so having having that support... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's nice. So then let's dig deeper because social organizing and social change, obviously very broad. It can mean a lot of different things. So what does that more specifically look like for you then, Sarah? Yeah. So again, zoom, zoom all the way in and then zoom out again. So, um, so right now I am the director of a new organization called Greener Pastures. Yeah. Uh, on a mission to end factory farming and we help grocery shoppers to have the tools, the inspiration, the resources that they need to make everyday decisions in support of humane, sustainable agriculture, both Mm -hmm. in their food sourcing decisions and then also taking civic action to address factory farming and get us towards a more sustainable, humane farming future. So in the day-to-day of my work, I'm always thinking about how do you use every tool in the toolkit to change hearts and minds Mm -hmm. so that people 
behave differently, but don't only do it in their own lifestyle. They also do it in the realm of politics. And so for me, social change work is all about how do you help an individual's thinking progress so that they're thinking about how they relate directly to big issues and how they can make changes both personally and politically to push forward. And I'm sure Sean has a different, you know, take on social change. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, well, my, in my job right now, I work on climate change and climate change policy and do work in organizing, which is fundamentally about how do we get people involved to change how decisions are made in our Mm -hmm. political system? Um, how do we build power so that way special interests don't have an outsized, um, voice when it comes to how decisions are made. And so that involves sometimes building up grassroots support, sometimes involves coming up with good strategies around how to pass policy. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a great sort of feel to be in it. It's, it's, you know, it's a privilege to do. I mean, people are involved in a lot of these issues aside from just having it as a job. Um, Mm -hmm. and people get involved in it just by their, how they think and feel about the issue, by how they, how they vote, how they support organizations that are doing this work. Um, you know, I feel incredibly, you know, privileged to be able to take on this as a job. Mm-hmm. And there's a yeah. lot of folks that have done work way before me to allow that to happen. We also, yeah. you know, we live in a society with a lot of a lot of freedoms, um, the, the freedom to freedom of speech, but also the freedom to dedicate money towards organizations like this. So, um, you know, for us, it's, a, it's it's kind of interesting because a lot of these issues are, you know, for us, it's, it's kind of both a job, which is a, which is a privilege. It feels kind of weird to have it as a as a job. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, yeah. you know in a lot of parts of the world, you can't have a job like this. And then there's, of course, you know, so many people in our country and in our world that do a lot to support and push these issues forward that are not doing it as a job. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, hearing you guys both uh, talk about what social organizing and change is to you, there are a lot of democratic elements to both of what you guys were saying. Yep. When you guys think of democracy, does that encourage you and keep you optimistic? Because more and more these days, when people are like, oh, like we have to protect this democracy, this project... I almost get sadder because it's just like, yeah, like, of course, well, of course we have to do that. But people are, and, and again, it's, it's that pessimist in me, that cynic in me. I'm like, yeah, but well, people are lazy or lazy and they're busy and they have so many other things and the world is complicated and they can't begin to think about these things and address them. How is democracy ever going to work? And I get like if if somebody came to me and say, well, then replace it with something better. I don't know what that looks like, but like democracy these days makes me sadder than it makes me happier. So how do you guys work through that then? We were just talking about this just the other day. Too. Yeah. Uh, like, so, like a frequent thing that we oh, talk about dinner. is, yeah. <laughs> what? Fun household. Classic Carol household conversation. It's really true. But um, we're just talking the other day about, you know, how we both early got involved in our work and the role of um, anger and dissatisfaction in the status quo as mm-hmm. a motivator. Yeah. And I think it's 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 really easy. And I totally share the same view as you where sometimes I feel um, sad or discouraged, mm-hmm. or just like all of the forces and powers that exist that prevent us from making progress and doing things that help real people in their daily lives. Like some of that feels like 
I can't get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. But for me, the piece of it that's really motivating and that is um, hopeful and that lets me get out of bed and work my hardest on the issues that I care about is when I think about the issues that I care about the most and how they affect me in my daily life Mm -hmm. and how things could be so much better. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the reason, and when I think about the reasons that they're not and who is holding power in our political system, who is is, um, protecting the structures and systems that allow the status quo to thrive, it it's anger and yeah, right. And, and we talked, and we were just talking about this the other day about how anger and spite mm-hmm. you can't only be angry and spiteful. Mm-hmm. But when you can use anger and spite as that first initial impetus, as that like driving force to go from like, oh, something's really bothering me. I'm really angry that this is what the status quo is, mm-hmm. and then refusal to accept that. That is like the driving force into change making. And if you can let anger start motivating you towards visioning what could be and what could be better and allowing that to fuel what you do, um, that to me is the motivating piece here. And that to me is also the lifeblood of democracy of like you're pissed off and you don't have to accept the status quo. But there's all these civic tools in our toolbox that we can use to move forward just have to have that thing that sparks you to start yeah and i'm glad it's it's and i can see that in you and i'm glad that anger and spite is what fuels you um and then like i have that too but then it's just like oh my god like why are people like you guys are you why are you guys the only one that take the mantle and think like we should do something about everyone can do something about this but no one does anything so it actually takes like a sarah like knowing that you like you take this energy you turn it into something positive for someone like me when i see someone do that i'm like oh yeah like that makes me feel more optimistic because I have that like fire in me, but yeah. I'm just like, God, I give up. Like this sucks. This is so <laughs> stupid. But then when I see someone like you be so positive about it and actually putting work in, I'm like, oh wait, there is hope. But Sean, so people are doing a lot more than it feel than we get mm. we get credit we give ourselves credit for, sure. and. Um, the work that Sarah and I do in sort of as sort of kind of professional organizers and advocates is um, supported by you know what what we're all doing collectively, right? So there, so there's a couple of differences, right? Like the you know for me when I started doing this work, um, I was just really angry about problems in the world that I saw. We were, we were spending money in our country on on wars in Iraq that seemed totally immoral and unjust. We mm-hmm. were um, you know, digging for oil in other countries when we needed to be doing the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the whole system seemed sort of broken. Um, somebody taught me skills to make civic change, civic engagement change, taught me skills about how do you get better people elected in office? How do you influence elected officials? Um, how do you kind of think about policy? These are all basic skills that somebody taught me um, that come from a long history of people doing work like this. And then my ability as an organizer to then actually do any of those things is, you know, tons and tons of other people getting involved and lending their support, um, getting their friends involved, um, you know, voting or making their voices heard. So I think a big part of social change is actually 
being appreciative of the things mm-hmm. that we are doing. And it's it's really it's not, you know, just just people that are kind of, you know, professional organizers and advocates doing this. It's, it really is all of us that care about it. We're doing so many things that we don't um, necessarily give ourselves credit for. And that's, I think, is the sort of the key part of being an organizer is you can help connect those dots for people. Our society is often set up to sort of um, tell us that, you know, at least the forces that are working against us to sort of tell us that nothing can be done mm-hmm. and kind of keep us in a state of sort of status quo. But social change is fundamentally about reinvigor- reinvigorating ourselves and each other to actually say we're all doing a lot more than it might seem. So that might be the way that you are. It might start with just paying attention to the issues mm-hmm. um, and spreading knowledge within your own personal circles. It might be the way that you vote and thinking about the candidates who are in office. It might be running for office. It might do- be donating money to an organization or sharing their work over social media. So all of those things are actually all part of the same network that allows any of this work to happen. Um, but I think for us, we've, you know, again, had the privilege to spend our time where we're learning more of the skills. So it's e- maybe easier for us to connect some of those dots. But just like Sarah was saying before, you know, fundamentally, we're trying to reconvince ourselves every single day that what we're doing matters <laughs> yeah. in the same way that anybody that doesn't have this as a job is doing. So I think that's, I actually think people, we're all doing way more than we're giving ourselves credit for, but it makes sense that it doesn't always feel that way. And that's kind of the struggle. Yeah. You know, yeah. when it comes to making change. And the other interesting thing is like successful organizing makes more organizers. Yeah. So mm. when, when organizing is successful, it's not, you know, Sean going in a room and doing his work for the day. And then when he leaves, he's still the only organizer or the same for me. It's successful when there is that element of um hopeful contagion yeah yeah. um so it makes me happy knowing that you know there's folks who who um look look to the organizing work that you know quote professional organizers are doing and feel inspired and feel glad that there's there there are folks doing that work yeah because that is the like first little instance of that hopeful contagion that then leaves someone else hopefully with the feeling of oh my gosh something's possible there are folks giving me opportunities to take action i can actually go forward and do something today maybe it's you know retweeting something maybe it's volunteering maybe it's giving money maybe it's running for office maybe it's uh, deciding to put more of our own labor and effort into um like the slow arduous grassroots power building work that often goes behind like big issues, especially when special interests are at the root. But like, it starts with um, like the tool chest of organizing, creating more organizers. Yeah. Yeah. Hearing you guys' point on that makes me, again, happy and sad at the same time. (laughs) Happy that being a little pollinator is, it sounds easy enough to do. And I'm so glad that there are people like you guys doing it. Makes me sad because it's, Hearing you guys say that, I totally agree. And I'm like, oh, it's that it's that simple and it's that innocent. How how did I get to the point where I'm just like, no, this sucks. This is stupid. <laughs> and like I'm like, I'm just not gonna I don't care anymore and like feel so apathetic because like what you guys say is so inspiring and simple and beautiful, but somehow I totally just like glossed over that. Even before you guys came in, the three of us were talking about like uh, at the time of this recording, we just had two mass shootings in a 24 hour window. And we were both talking about like, dude, that sucks. That's stupid. And we were talking about like, well, nothing's going to happen. And we we already gave up. The three of us already gave up. We're like, nothing's going to happen. And then we talked about how 
it actually has seeped into our psyche. Like we're thinking like, well, now when I go to work, I have to look around first before I start my day because it's like I don't want to get shot at work. Does, but there's a difference between being apathetic and um, feeling like you don't know how change can happen or what change can happen. I mean, you're you're not you're clearly not apathetic. <laughs> you know, you, you you care about these issues, and you're probably doing a lot more things than you're giving yourself than that you're giving yourself credit for. But that's it's that's a huge problem, right? I mean, I think we look at that, and, and we and that's that is the first thing we say is what well, what can be done about it, and <sighs> well, I I. <laughs> I'm going to get like a little like woo woo for one moment. That's fine. But, like, I, I think we get to believe what we choose to believe, mm-hmm. and we can believe that um, we are in circumstances beyond our control, and we are victim to greater powers, and we um, have to deal with the tragedies and the unfairness and the structural inequities that we have around us. Um, as just like a passive recipient of just really terrible current circumstances. Mm -hmm. There's another thing that we can also choose to believe, which is that there is um, power and inherent hopefulness in struggle towards something better. Mm -hmm. And that anytime we have an opportunity to confront the status quo with a choice to struggle towards something better, Mm -hmm. then that actually gets us somewhere. So, like when I first learned about the two mass shootings yesterday, my first reaction is the same as yours. It's mm-hmm. like, like, again, this is just America is, now. Yeah. yeah. And every day when I go into my school building, you know, when I go in for my master's, I, um, I look around to see like, is, is this going to be the day where someone brings in, a you know, a, a tool of war yeah, in my school right. building. And if someone walks into a classroom when I am just trying to sit and focus and just, especially like <laughs> if a white dude walks into the classroom who I don't recognize, I get scared. Yeah. I get scared. Right. Um, and so like we can, we can fester in that feeling and I feel that way a lot. Yeah. And then there's moments like today when I woke up and thought about the, um, the two mass shootings and thought, Okay, who are the people working on this? Mm-hmm. Um, and for you know, folks who care and who are listening about um, gun violence in particular, there's this incredible grassroots organizing group called Everytown, Everytown for Gun Safety, and they are doing a ton of work of social change grassroots organizing work to push this issue forward. They're working on getting elected officials to take action against gun violence. They're working on organizing communities. They're working on lifting up the stories of victims. They are working on spreading public education and getting to go towards research on gun safety. True things that if you struggle towards that, we actually get somewhere better. And and the I can't solve the whole issue myself. Mm-hmm. And so if I say like, me, Sarah, I am responsible for solving gun violence or factory farming or John works on climate change. Like if any of us think, oh, it's our own individual responsibility to solve this whole problem, then we feel the crushing weight. But if there's one thing that I can do to struggle and push forward, mm-hmm. then that is that powerful piece of contagion so today i like made a social media post about every town and donated ten dollars like not a big deal just a small amount but that was my engaging with the struggle yeah so there are very small things that if many 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 people do to engage in the struggle it's that choosing to believe that we can do something more and doing that inherently gets us forward well and and part of it right is that 
you already are familiar with that organization, Every Town for Gun Safety, right? Yeah. And you're already familiar a little bit with the work that they do. So we sort of are both familiar with this organization because we know people and we're sort of in this world. And we sort of can look at them and say, okay, they've said that part of the problem, and I might not get this totally right, but they've said that part of the problem is um, the political climate of this. And you have big special interests like the NRA that kind of shift the political debate, really push politicians so they can't take – you know, stances that most Americans would agree with because they're going to lose election. And so they're trying to organize at the grassroots level to actually show there's way more voters that actually believe in common sense gun safety law. So they're going out talking with people at the community level. And so you start to hear that and you're like, okay, wait, I can sort of see how that makes sense, right? Here's the problem. The problem is that special interests can push our elected officials to not get reelected. If we actually mobilized all the people that feel the way we do, then elected officials would vote the way we want, right? So you can start of so that's really I think what organizing is about is sort of saying is creating strategies and showing what's possible. Yeah. And so again, you know, we are particularly you know privileged in that we are aware of some of these organizations and sort of are in this world, and so we're able to kind of look at this big gigantic issue and say here's a solution here's something mm-hmm. that can happen about it i don't think people are really in general i think most people are not apathetic i think most of us are rational and we're saying okay does me doing x actually do anything mm-hmm. and most of the time when we look at a problem we can't think of anything that us getting involved changes anything and so it totally makes sense that we wouldn't do anything and so part of what organizations that are doing organizing work can do is is show people well if you did this one thing here's how that is part of a larger solution and when we do that we people oftentimes do do something and get involved and that does add up and make a difference yeah i heard two really cool things um your 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 call to go towards struggle is not a intuitive thing. I think yeah. when people see like a cloud of struggle in front of them, the the normal reaction is avoid that, walk around that cloud or go backwards. But to hear you say like, yeah, if you if you if you feel passionate about something, the call to duty is to walk through that and resolve that. I think that's really powerful. Um, and I really like Sean's point about connecting these dots. I've been thinking more about that recently too. Um, at my new job, I work with youth and one of, um, one of my kids asked me like, he wants to write a paper about, um, education for, um, people of color. And I remember when I was young, like, I think there's this, there's this sort of notion that unless you're like the, like an eight model minority Asian like me, that, you know, your parents don't really care how well you do in school and things like that. And I've always seen the opposite. I think like immigrant families care so much about how their kids are doing in school. Um, and it's, it's, it's not that they don't care. There are so many barriers for them to get engaged in that. And they don't know how to connect those dots exactly. Who do I talk to? Where do I look? Where do I go? So to hear Sean talking about, you know, like, You've you've been lucky enough to know and you've been giving these given these tools and you've had you know, you've dipped your foot in the water. So you kind of know where to go. So many like immigrant families don't know the process. And so even though they want to get engaged in the education system, they just don't know where to begin. Right. I have so many (laughs) thoughts on that. Yes. And I I think 
if I can zoom out to like, I think there's a whole conversation about where um, like white supremacy and where white privilege and where structures around white privilege and white supremacy intersect with organizing work. And it is a piece of white privilege and a problem with how our systems and structures are that if you, you know, if you have all the privileges of, you know, being a white person who has all the privileges that come with a long history of whiteness and you are first if you are you're a citizen in the country and understand um, with with fewer barriers to understanding yeah. how you can go and use your full power to affect change like that's a big set of privileges right there and to I w- I think about this so frequently about how doing this type of work and the barrier, the very few barriers that Sean and I have had to do this type of work is also a piece of, of white privilege and having the financial security and all sorts of other things that have allowed us to, to take a a road less frequently traveled. And, um, it is hard. Mm -hmm. It is hard. And there are incredible groups who work on breaking down those barriers. Mm -hmm. And there's also so much that has to be done. Yeah. I think the pendulum is definitely moving and I don't know where, I think the pendulum doesn't even know where it wants to be yet. Um, I watched Aziz Ansari's most recent stand-up comedy special. And he talks about that too, where he brings up the topic of white privilege. Um, But he also like, talked about you know it that can go too far too where um he asked like a white audience member to rate um give a score on crazy rich asians and um the person was like it's like an 85 he's like but it's like a 95 on rotten tomatoes like what are you like too white for it and the guy and the person felt like you could tell it's like a white liberal person they're like oh no like that's not and he's like it's like he's like it's cool that's your opinion you know like we get it like you're in support of like you know like empowering asian people to make a, like a hollywood film um but you don't have to fake like it's a 95 because <laughs> you know like you feel the pressures of white privilege yeah so i like to me obviously like white privilege is a thing it's established we know it's a thing but i don't want that to crush white allies either and i feel like there's a there's an opportunity for that to happen Totally. I just finished reading a book that I think all white people need to read. <laughs> What's it called? It's called White Fragility. It's by Robin D'Angelo. It is awesome and like gets at this exact question of like, oh, what? Wow. How do you? How do white people get over this um, often so common reaction of white fragility to actually step forward and be true allies in the space of social change in a way that um, systematically disrupts um, white supremacist and racist systems and structures and allows us to actually do do our own work to support the progress that we all need to make together towards something better. Yeah. But yeah. Any white people listening to this podcast, please <laughs> read. <that book>. read <laughs> but I feel white like fragility. <laughs> maybe people of color could take away some stuff from that book too, because yeah. that's where I feel like the left, the political left, is really good at beating each other up. And so when I see people of color, when I see like an, a a white ally approach, like a group for minorities or whatever, um, how defensive sometimes those groups can get. I'm like. Okay, I'm like, I get it. I get the, the what's happening here, the dynamics, but they're clearly our allies and we should try to welcome them more than be like, well, you're you're white and therefore we have to like work through a thousand things before 
we begin. And I don't think, I'm not saying like working through those things is bad, but at a certain point, there are so many barriers, I feel like, and I, I don't know, it, it just worries me that we're, we're putting up too many barriers to build those bridges and we're not get. we're just, eventually things are going to slow down. If I don't know if I can put Sean on the spot a little bit, but Sean just did this really cool organizing event these last two days and organized this convening of academics and mm-hmm. organizers, two really siloed groups that are both working on climate change, yeah. but separately. Yeah. And Sean organized with a, you know, a team of other folks this incredible event to bring folks together. And and it was really interesting because there's a big environmental justice presence. And so some of the conversations that I was able to overhear as I did some work on this event as well with Sean um, kind of get got a little bit to the space of like, what do you do when you're trying to do social change work together? And there are these there are these very real, unignorable in the present mm. conflicts and tensions around race and racism and in white supremacist structures. I don't know if you want to speak to any of that, but I just feel like you had such a cool, this recent example of this very yeah, thing. I think it's like intersections, yeah. like that whole conversation about intersectionality. Like when things, when 18 th- different things collide and it's really hard to resolve and like untangle all of that, where does that, what does that look like? And for me, it's just like, well, okay, if, if you know there's 18 intertwined things, but you know all four entities at the table are allies, yeah. like, don't let that bog you down. Yeah, I, I mean, I think race and racism and structural racism are just a part of social change in the nonprofit social change world as any other part of our society. And so, you know, right, so Sarah and I are sitting here and, we work for nonprofit organizations and make a salary, and, and this is our job to do this work. But, um, but social change, environmental justice, and alternative justice movement has often been unfunded work by people in communities right. on the front lines. Often, almost you know, almost always people of color. You know, where you see disproportionate amounts of pollution, um, people that are just in their communities trying to working to solve problems, mm-hmm. right? And that still goes on today. So, and you have you often sometimes those. Um, since people form organizations um, and sometimes they'll work to raise money. But, you know, we, we have to break down all those structures too, right? Funders will there's – a, there's a term I've heard um, – gentrification of the environmental movement, right? Where, 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 is the oh. fun, where are the funding dollars going? Um, you know, are they going just to, um, the, you know, sort of the big mainstream, often white-led environmental organizations that tend to have more resources and thus they can leverage the resources they have to raise more money? Or is, is the funding going to organizations that um, are on the front lines that may be not operating in those same sort of structural paradigms? Um, you know, so it's and it's particularly important that sort of leadership and funds goes to those grassroots organizations if you think that the problem is a, it, it needs to be solved by the people who are impacted by the problem, mm-hmm. right? If you actually want to create solutions that work for the people who are facing the problems, then you need to have um, the people who are impacted that kind of coming up with those solutions. So to figure that out, you have to break down structural racism and structural barriers and you have to be conscious but it's but we have to work it work through it Mm -hmm. right we have to and so oftentimes that means some people stepping back and creating space for others to lead um but it certainly means being conscious of those those yeah the forces yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. 
that's great. I, so I want to definitely dig into your guys' specific work and greener pastures yeah. uh, more specifically. Uh, I really appreciate that you prefaced your previous statement with not to get too woo-woo <laughs> because I've been thinking a lot about, and I don't think it was. I think you were totally spot on, um, because, but because of Marianne Williamson, yeah. I've been thinking a lot about like, God, like, could, when do politicians sound too woo-woo? <laughs> and I don't think she's, like, again, she says great things. But man, is she so is she too woo for me? Like when she talks about like the power of the mind is greater mm-hmm. than any like radiation mm-hmm. in the world. I'm just like <laughs> just tone it down a little bit because I like what she has to say. But just like, oh, come on, lady. <laughs> well, I feel so similarly. Yeah. 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 It's it's hard because like I think so many and you know again big picture in social change like everything starts from a place of values yes what do we care about yes um but i think we have to like move into the okay so how does this show up in our lives in real practical ways and mm-hmm. how do we put on our problem solving fix yeah. it hats? like a science coat or something <laughs> you know she is like, so how do interesting we, how do we how do we approach um things that are ultimately emotional in a way that um manifest those values in practical rational ways yeah so, so i like to just have my moments of woo and then bring it back to you had the right <laughs> bring it back bring it back to the pragmatic because yeah. that's where i feel like with her like yeah like the emotional piece she's so right when she talks about you know like right now what we lack in the political conversation is like morality and like consideration yeah. of the person next to you Love. she's so right yeah exactly yeah, yeah. yeah yep. she always uses that or like dark forces is yep. one of her favorite <laughs> words and she's so right about the emotional piece but i'm just like if you take this a little too far like you have been taking it that makes the job of people like us that love the woo woo (laughs) but like also want to ground it in something it makes our job a lot harder when we begin to talk about like well shouldn't we have more love in the political process people like oh you don't go there so I don't know I don't know. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah tons of sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Her opening statement during the last debate was hilarious too because she ended it. She was like, I'm Marianne Williamson and I'm running for president. <laughs> like, wait, no, yeah, lady. Yeah. <laughs> she is so interesting because I think we're all kind of hungering for a little bit of that, right? Like yeah, a little bit right. of a connection to values and we are feeling a lot of those things. I don't know what to think about her. I, You know, I also think that Um, You know, I want somebody as president that can also run an executive branch and appoint people to the Supreme Court and write policy (laughs) and manage it. So I want a little bit of that. (laughs) Balance again. Balance. Um, So let's dive into greener pastures. Um, That's the official. That's where people can look up and find it then. Yeah. Our website is to greener pastures dot org. Okay. And how did this become your passion topic? Oh, goodness. That's a big question. (laughs) Um, There is a long answer and a short answer. I'll try and give the short one. But um, for as long as I can remember, the things that I've cared about have been people, animals, Mm -hmm. the environment, and food. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing that sits at the crossroads of those four things, like the issue of factory farming. Mm. I think a lot of times when folks think about, well, what do we really want in our food? We think about we want food that's healthy for us Mm -hmm. and that treated the people and the animals who raised it 
well and with respect and care and that leaves the environment better than how we found it and when we think about the picture that comes to mind of you know the typical you know the typical american farm we think you know red barn you mm-hmm. know cows in the distance pigs and chickens walking around enjoying the sunshine you know farmer on the pitchfork right and the unfortunate reality is the dominant way that we raise livestock and animal products today is not even close to that you know we're in a system now where 99%, you know, 10 billion farm animals per year, just talking livestock, not even talking fish, are raised in factory farm conditions where they're treated like a unit in production mm-hmm. under a roof in a in a factory farm um, instead of something that protects the values and the, the that, you know, traditional picture that we have of, of what agriculture is. And so... Um, as I've done organizing work over the years on food issues, on environmental issues, on clean water issues, the the organizing that, that I was doing on other issues just all kept coming back to factory farming and mm-hmm. all kept coming back to, um, okay, I'm doing work to protect uh, the Chesapeake Bay from water pollution and from dead zones and agricultural runoff. What's one of the big problem sources there? It's factory farms yeah it's chickens on the eastern shore thousands and thousands under one roof and when i uh, my last job was working for a major food bank in south central wisconsin um doing work in both urban and rural communities to fight hunger and connect individuals with snap benefits um supplemental nutrition assistance program i can't tell you how many farmers i signed up for nutrition assistance oh wow because Wealth is leaving rural communities because now the wealth in ag is held in fewer and fewer corporate industrial hands Mm -hmm. and not in small farmers that are doing the right thing by their land, doing the right thing by their livestock, doing the right thing by their communities. And there's nothing more heartbreaking than signing a farmer up for nutrition assistance. There's nothing more heartbreaking than that. So while doing other organizing work, everything just kept coming back to this issue. And finally, I was like... I need to be doing something about it. Yeah. Right? This is this is the thing that keeps me up at night, and it's the thing that I, you know, if I leave this world having contributed to one thing, I, I really want this to be that thing. And mm-hmm. so um, that's when I started thinking I'd like to start my own project to yeah. address factory farming and do, do something to um, push the ball forward, and that's where the kind of origin of Greener Pastures came out. That's great. It almost, listening to that story, too, it's... It's not that you found it. It almost it it found you. The topic found you and almost forced you into it because it just kept coming up again and again and again. In a lot of ways, yeah. And you know, I also think a lot about the relationship that I have with food, and I think a lot of us can relate to this. You know, when we sit down to eat a piece of food. When we know that there's alignment between our values around humane treatment of animals and Mm -hmm. environmental sustainability and empowering and keeping wealth in communities and at the local level, like when we think about those values and then know that those values are behind the practices of the food that is sitting on our plate, we enjoy that food Mm. more. Like it just deepens our connection to our food. And so um, like the the issue just keeping on finding me and then also knowing like 
I just love to eat. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> and I want the full joy of food. Yes. I want it to be healthy for me. And I want it to be kind to animals. And I want it to make it so that farmers can earn a decent living and that we are having many farmers on the land in thriving rural communities. You know, all of that comes back to our plate. And so, yeah, this the issue spoke to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I eventually, God, there's so much that I want to talk to you about. Um I want to eventually get to what are some practical actions that we can take. Because yeah. um, I know after your qualitative presentation, I tried to think more and more about that just in my daily life. Yeah. Um, but when you were talking about that, I wish I had a less of an emotional connection to my food. Like, again, I, in a way, because I love having that emotional connection to food, too. It's just like, you know, you invite people over and it's like this fun communal thing, too. Yeah. Um but I almost wish like I could get to a place where I knew it was like a source of fuel and it didn't mm. have to taste good. It didn't have to be fun. And it was just like, you know, like <laughs> then, it, you know, I would just eat healthier every day. It was just like that. This is what my body needs. And it, it would just be just more rigid that way. Mm. Um, do you guys have like a big emotional connection to food? Well, I'm the easy. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm the easy. Yes. Um, I do. And I've I've, you know. I've struggled with, you know, my relationship with food is a complicated one mm-hmm. um, and, you know, struggled with disordered eating in the past and um, have had times where I've treated food as non-emotional, that this is calories and fuel and something that I should limit and yeah. should um, not be emotional at all. And then had times in life where I realized, wait a second, this is part of the joy of living. Right, part right. Part of like, yes, nutrition. Yes, like checking off a box for calories, but also like this is this is our culture. Mm-hmm. And this is my heritage. And this is having moments for gratitude and reflection and for sensory experience. And just for like, like, I made blueberry crumble last night, like oh, just nice. for the joy of like seasonal <laughs> summertime living, you know? Um, so, so you like the act oh. of cooking too. Oh, yeah. See, I kind of oh. hate cooking, oh. but I love food. <laughs> you should just come over for dinner. That's the answer. <laughs> That's what he's waiting come on for. Over. <laughs> yes, I did. I did. Let me feed you. Oh, that blueberry You're crumble sounds great. <laughs> but no, like I totally agree with all of that. Like when I, I'm like, why, when I get sad, why do I eat ice cream? And, but it's just like, you know, like, I don't know. I love, I love having that. It makes me feel good. And so it's hard to like disconnect it. Um, but I'm hoping that we sort of get into a battle here too. Not that I want, but Food fight. why are you looking at me? But so Dawson, <laughs> I, we, like, like he's told you guys, when you guys first got here, we have been lifelong friends. Um, and he has been the pickiest eater, mm. top three pickiest eaters in my life. Top three. And so give me I, that belt. So I'm like, <laughs> what do we like? What do we? So I, like, it's even hard for me to change. I am not a picky eater, but there are so many times when I watch videos about animal abuse. Also, do you guys have pets in your life? We've got a cat. Yeah. Yep. Good. Yep. And it's just like, you know, like once you're introduced to another family member that isn't a human being, you you have a deeper appreciation for the emotions that an, a, an animal can carry. Like I just remember growing up, it was just like, you know, like those are like second tier dumb things that roam the earth with us. And then you realize, no, that is definitely <laughs> not the case when you're around nope. them more often. And so I, I think about my dog and I'm like, well, how can I eat? How can I also 
Well, one, like knowing that the cow was <laughs> abused before I ate it, that's not easy. And so even for someone like me that think about that, I, I still have a hard time changing what I, my behavior and what I purchase and all of that. And then I think like, well, that's completely impossible for this dude. Like he has to eat potatoes and beef and cheese every meal. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, you, but you barely like potatoes, right? Yeah, I, I backed off on a ton. Yeah. So I mean, you my, see what I'm saying? You see I'd what say, I'm working with here? Yeah, I mean, probably ninety five percent of my diet is meat, yeah. dairy, yeah, and cheese. Not really dairy. I don't do milk, but yeah, it's tough. It, so like you, you, you couldn't switch. No, but it's like. Switching from a hamburger that's made from a cow to like an impossible burger. Burger King's doing them. What do you? What is your guys' opinion <laughs> so on? So like, I don't know. I don't know where you sit. Like, are you vegan, vegetarian? Yeah, what are everything you guys? Yeah. in? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'm a vegetarian. I've been a vegetarian for over 20 years. Nice, that's a long time. Um, and the position that I hold with Greener Pastures is. There's not one white, right way to eat. And there's not only one right way to be an ethical and morally mm-hmm. sound eater. You can be a meat eater. You can be a vegetarian. You can be a vegan. You can be a flexitarian. You know, you can, you can do a lot of things. The, yeah. for, for me, the most important things are what are the practices behind whatever it is you choose to put on your plate and how do those practices either fit with or contradict your personal values? Mm-hmm. And if you really enjoy having a cheeseburger how do we mm. get it so that that che- yeah I got the mm. how do we get it so that that cheeseburger is something that protects the things that you sure. care about and so um, you know I'm not out here to get everyone to become a vegan I'm not out here to get everyone to never eat a cheeseburger again I think it's about thinking well what is the connection between what I enjoy putting on my plate and some of the bigger broader issues and how can I start thinking about making very small incremental changes in how I'm thinking about and understanding the food on my plate and then how to make sourcing decisions so that when you sit down for that cheeseburger you can not only check off your picky eater checkbox and like <laughs> really, you know, enjoy that cheeseburger, but also have it be something that lets you know, okay, the the cow that this meat came from, or it was treated humanely right. and, you know, raised on pasture and grass fed and, and beef is really interesting because um, beef, when they're pastured on the land can help soil to sequester carbon. So really ethically produced beef can actually help to address climate change, some really interesting things here. Mm-hmm. So it's about like helping to understand the connection there. And then so that when you sit down to enjoy that cheeseburger, you're like, yeah, this fully aligns with my values and yep. I can enjoy it. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's beautifully put. And I think there's this idea among Americans where if somebody tells you like, what if we rethought meat and how we do food? They're like, well, you're just some hippie trying to come in here and make us all into vegetarians. You're not even saying that. Like, no. you, I mean, there's obviously a balance yeah. that we need, a much better balance that we need to achieve. Yeah. Um, but like you're saying, like, you know, there, there, there is a way to produce and consume beef in, in a better way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I think when you start to talk about stuff like this, there's, there's two reactions um, a lot of people tend to have right at first, which is a little bit of guilt and yeah. or a little bit of, um, I don't know what's possible or if I can do that, right? 
And that comes because we're sort of thinking about the problem in this in this way that it's really our fault mm-hmm. when actually it, it's not our fault. There's there's systematic issues that are creating this problem. So there are, you know, Sarah's whole website and her organization is showing that there are farmers all across Minnesota and Wisconsin and, of course, all across the world that are doing these things right now, that are raising meat in ethically humane, environmentally sound ways, that are doing things for the environment. These farmers exist. In fact, this is the traditional vision of farming that has always existed. But what's happened over the last maybe hundreds of years, a hundred years, I don't know, you know, is that some huge multinational corporations have made a system where they can profit off of a off of a factory farm system and drip made it harder for those other farmers to compete so it starts with kind of understanding what are the options available for us and then it comes from helping to support the structural changes that allow those farmers who are already doing the right thing to be more successful but this isn't the natural sort of system the natural system is things that are more in line with our our values mm-hmm. um and so it's it's a little bit of both it's a little bit of the education and what can we do as individuals and consumers to change the paradigm and then it's and it's leveraging that into more structural change. But we got to remember, it's not about feeling guilty or feeling that it's not possible um, because it's not really our fault yeah. that what's out there in the grocery store for us to buy yeah. is comes from this bad system. And there are things that we can actually be doing. And I think that's one of the things that's really cool about Sarah's website and her approach, which is all about highlighting those stories of the farmers that are doing these right things. And then what are the changes we can be making that will help make that more available to all of us? Yeah. I love that point too. When I, when another thing that gets me sad when I think about these larger issues like industrial ag or climate change is the level of cognitive dissonance that happens too. And so like when you say something like that, these are, it's, there was a systematic approach to get to this point. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like, well, a lot of people that are sort of still pro the status quo are also like these like free market people that when they talk about the economy, they're like, oh, but we believe in a free market, so leave it alone. But it's like, you know, it, it, this wasn't free to begin with. They, <laughs> they right. made policies right. and they pumped money into certain right. things. And when we realize, like, okay, like we're having this this food race with Russia, we're going to make more grains than they do. And then all of a sudden we have a surplus of grains. We're like, what do we do with that? Well, let's feed it to our animals and then let's make high fructose corn syrup. Right. This That is the opposite of a free market. So it's just <laughs> like, well, and then also I have an pr- issue with the free market in general because that, that there you're already ignoring the philosophy of power, how power works. You know, if you right. just let some, if you just let a powerful entity roam around in a free market, you fail to understand that power begets power. So it's never anything there to take it down. And so, but like this didn't start from a free market position as it is. So we have to intervene. We have to do something about it. Yeah. There's so many things that are artificial yes. about it's just everything about how we think about um, current meat and animal products. You know, I spent a lot of time and spent a lot of this last year learning from grocery shoppers about how they make decisions around food. Like what is going through grocery shoppers' head when they get into the, you know, typical grocery store and they go into the meat aisle and they're thinking about what to get. Yeah. And the, the fact that the ethically produced item costs more than the factory farmed product is not an accident. Mm-hmm. That is an artificial 
that's a, a an artificial thing that we're seeing. Yeah. Um, the fact that um, we are primed to think that certain cuts of meat look clean and look appetizing and others don't um, is also artificial. The fact that we um, are going and looking at the packaging of meat and see the little picture of that red barn. Yeah. And, oh, they put a little, they, you know, put a little pig on the pasture there. Was that pig actually on pasture? I don't <laughs> think so. It's artificial. So there's, there's a, a lot going on around, um, you know, human psychology around price, yeah. around what we think of and what we gravitate towards pulling, around food marketing and misinformation. There's just a lot of layers here. And those layers were successfully built up because, Corporate special interests in ag are immensely powerful and have been so, so successful at shaping the systems, the policies, the supply chains, the language, the regulation around our food so that by the time you have your cheeseburger on your plate, it's it's a manifestation of this huge, huge, huge system. And back to what John mentioned around like guilt and then feeling trapped. Yeah. Like it's not your fault that that cheeseburger is is the way it is. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's not your fault. And you now have opportunity <laughs> to engage in the Don't struggle. So it's first realizing, no, it's not your fault. And then, okay, what is, what's possible? And then how can I, how can I engage in the struggle? And Sarah's, one of the reasons her website is really cool is because it kind of mixes what are things you can do in your daily life and the choices that you're making along with what are some of sort of the structural changes that we can be making? What are some of the policy changes? What are some of the um, different policy positions we could be pushing? And that's the place to start. You know, like maybe one thing on each. You don't have to change everything about your diet. You don't have to change everything about the political system. But really what you kind of oftentimes find is that if just start with one thing, maybe in each category, and then it you start to sort of see the impact that it has as well as what you are capable of doing. So is eating less meat, like that's a good starting point? Yeah. Just eating is, less meat. Yeah. I, I like to think of it as... Um, you know, if if you're going to be a meat eater and if that's the right thing to do for you, you should be a meat eater. Mm-hmm. But think about eating the most ethically produced meat that you possibly oh, okay. can. And the interesting thing is, um, in most cases, the most ethically produced meat costs more. Mm-hmm. You're going to pay more per pound. You're going to pay more. And, you know... As, as we know from basic economics, you know, when the price goes up, the quantity goes down. Yeah. So if the average, you know, if the average, you know, diehard meat eater makes a commitment to eating better meat, the chance that they're going to eat less meat is going to come hand in hand. Yeah. So with that comes a lot of education. And this is this is part of what I do as well. With this comes the education of, okay. How do you know what better meat is? Yeah. How do you know where to find that better meat? How do you go about sourcing that better meat? And then, okay, you might have just set yourself up for a couple of non-cheeseburger meals. How do you come in and fill those meals in in a way that also builds a better food system? Yeah. It doesn't, you know, go from eating, you know, a grass-fed piece of beef to eating, you know, a highly processed problematic piece of other food. We want to replace, replace with other things that are still healthy, care for the environment, et cetera. And so filling in some of those options is what I help with too. But yeah. 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 What are you going to say, Dave? Well, I was just going to ask Sean, uh, since having met Sarah, have you made changes to your diet and your shopping habits? 
Yeah, I, I think I started to make some changes on my own a, a few years before we started to meet, um, before we met, and um, more since we've been together. A lot of what we eat is habit, um, habitual. So being in a household with somebody else, it started to change what you buy and what you eat. And you open up your – I mean the first thing – I have just limited my meat. I don't eat very much meat, but I do sometimes. I remember when I stopped eating meat, I was about 25 years old, and the first thing I, I thought was – you know, I'm like, this is, sounds interesting, but it seems impossible. It seems totally impossible. Yeah. And for a while it felt like that. And now it sort of seems so simple to not eat meat because we've found other things we like to eat. Yeah. Um, so it's a lot of it is just it, it's habits, and um, so living with somebody else that has different eating habits, you know, it it have has a huge impact. But, um, you know, I, again, we don't there, we don't have like a scarcity. We are we're, uh, we're not holding ourselves back from things that we want or need or enjoy. We've it, and really, it's kind of liberating to sort of open up your horizons to all these things that you can eat that you both enjoy that you feel, um, you know, support support a good food system too. So mm -hmm. um, it, that, that's, it's really helpful to have somebody else in your household who um, can, you know, teach you more. And that's another thing that's also good on her website, um, which is she has a lot of uh, recipes on there too. Oh, so nice. it's worth just, you know, again, like picking one thing on there and sort of exploring it. That's how a lot of this starts is habit. Habits and culture is sort of how we've got here and habits and culture is will be how yeah. we sort of change it too. I love that. I, I think that there's a good opportunity because I want to learn and I'm using Dawson as my tool to learn because he is so far away from what Greener Pasture stands for. <laughs> not that, I don't believe that. Not that you're I don't like, believe that, that either. Don't not that you're like, I spent way more money on higher quality meat. <laughs> I, I was actually going to ask, like, do you do... That's, yeah. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. And I like, have no to, issue spending way more connecting money. Connecting more of these dots or telling, like, is, is beef your go-to meat? Uh, yeah, I think so. Is it? Is Then if, if also Dawson changed that to chicken, does that make a huge difference too then? Or like, could, could you even do that? Yeah, I mean, I, I it's a. Do you like a, chicken? Yeah, of course. Okay. What, am I crazy? <laughs> <laughs> well, why do you? Can we ask why? Why do you? You said you you do spend money on high quality. What, what what's behind that? Why do you decided? To uh, I mean, I think it just comes from economics. Like, I don't. Uh -huh. I'm not poor. Like, uh -huh. I, I mean, I have I have an extra. Like, I have enough money that I can afford the higher uh -huh. quality right. stuff, uh -huh. and I know it tastes better. Um, and I I enjoy like buying a nice piece of meat that I know is going to be good quality mm -hmm. making it and tasting it and it's good yeah. like, i like that mm -hmm. if i buy a 99 cent steak from quick trip like you know it's, it's probably gonna, gonna taste like shit yeah and uh <laughs> so yeah that's that comes with it like i'm not i'll never do that but yeah yeah mm -hmm. so i get that's for me yeah i know i'm trying to think of like easy and please give us tips if you can think of off the top of your head like easy little tips that would help that wouldn't even get in the way of our like daily routine i remember we were talking once and like, I have bacon in my freezer, but a lot of times I don't eat it because I'm like, well, I got to thaw it out and I want to <laughs> eat right now, so I just don't eat it. And I was and I was talking to Dawson about I'm like, hey, how often do you eat bacon? He's like, almost every day. I'm like, how, like, how do you plan ahead and, like, thaw your bacon out? He's like, no, I just have it in the fridge. And I was like, oh, my God, like, <laughs> you eat bacon every day. I had bacon <laughs> this morning. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, how does, how does, like, how does someone do that? And, like, I don't know. So, like. There's gaps between 
Dawson and I. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also like want to get better. And also, like, how much do you eat meat a lot, then, Dean? Uh, I mean, weekly. Weekly, not, not every day. Yeah. Um, one thing I was going to ask Sarah is, yeah, I try to eat more seafood. Uh, other than like oh, red nice. meat, beef, and pork, but really, is that a, making a difference on the environment? Good question. Because uh, I'm not really looking for where it's coming from or anything. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I get the question every so often, and, you know, there's a lot circulating online around this idea of, like, should I swap A for B? Should I swap mm-hmm. beef for chicken? Should I swap seafood for, you know, like, mm-hmm. a, as though. Um, you remember those games when we're really little and they give you like, you know, there's like a little square piece and it's got to go through the square hole and then a little round piece and it's, yeah. you know, it's yeah. almost like, well, can, can we just like shove some, something through a different, you know, can we just like swap one thing for another thing? Yeah. Um, and I like to think about it in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there are, there's a whole climate argument of like, okay, just big picture, we're going to eat certain things. What is likeliest to have the lowest carbon footprint? So should you swap out beef for chicken or seafood or et cetera? I'm going to set that argument aside for a moment and say, um, I'm not really in the camp of saying you should not be eating seafood. You should swap that for something else. Mm-hmm. But instead, I'd encourage you to start doing some exploration into the practices behind your current seafood and ask yourself, well, what's really important to me in my seafood? Do I want to have the most excellent taste I can possibly get? Do I want this to come from sustainably managed wild fisheries? Do I want this to be from um, companies or organizations that do advocacy to um, protect our oceans and protect our global seafood supply? Do I, you know what 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 do you want in that piece of fish? You mm-hmm. know? And then start doing a little bit of research of where is your fish coming from? And there are some wonderful resources around sourcing fish to make sure that, yeah, if there's something that's really important to you and what you're getting right now actually doesn't deliver on that value for you, you know, that affects you. It affects your bottom line. It affects your health. It affects the joy of eating. It affects your taste. Like that actually affects your experience of enjoying seafood. Mm -hmm. And so I'd encourage you to start thinking about, well, what's most important to me? How is that showing up in what I'm eating right now? And if you cannot find evidence that what you want is in the piece of fish that makes it onto your plate, then time to explore not swapping fish for something else, mm-hmm. but how do I source the most ethically sourced piece of fish or seafood that you want? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like that. Mm-hmm. What is priority number one for you, Dawson? Just t- flavor? Yeah, Just probably. How good does it taste? Yeah, I'd say. So you, there. you would pay a little bit, like you, I mean, you said you do pay a little bit more if you know the meat is, it tastes better, yeah, but like also I, if it's I, just, if it's just better overall. Yeah, like I shoot for grass fed when I'm at the store, right? Yeah. Or if I go to the butcher shop. Yeah. Try to find that. I pay more for it. Nice. I have no problems with it because that's majority. I don't eat like cereal and I don't <laughs> eat breads and I don't, so it's meat and that's what's a big piece to me. Like that's all I'm really taking in. Yeah. How come you don't eat bread? Just well, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm a little bit bigger person. So <laughs> the more carbs I have, the harder it is for me to get back down to like where I want to be. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. that's a that's a really big piece for me on uh, higher higher protein. Yeah, man, it's tough. And yeah. I can't I can't do like a tofu. Oh really? I, it's I won't. I can't. You tried? I don't need to. I, it's a mental <laughs> it's a mental block. Like there's a lot of things that people are like. Well, you should just try it. I'm like I can't. It just won't happen. You'll do an Impossible Burger though. I've tried them. Um, I've made them at my own house. I I grilled them on the same grill I make all my meat on. How was so that? I was okay. 
you know, yeah. I, I'm, I'm interested to see what it would taste like from somewhere that makes it on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Just because, you know, maybe I'm doing it wrong. Or maybe right. I'd cook it too long or something like that. But yeah. uh, I, I get a kick out of it because, like, Burger King is rolling out Impossible Burger across the nation right now. Yeah, White Castle. But they too. make it on, they're <laughs> going to make it on the same grill. They make all their other burgers. So, like, it's the same thing. It, if you're trying to say from, like, a vegetarian's not going to eat it because I want to go in there and get it, but you're not going yeah. to Burger King to get it just to try it. Right, right, right. Do you guys have any opinions on these different sources of meat, fake meat? I have some opinions. I might, I'm still in the learning and gathering stage in the meat alternative space. Um, overall, I hear a lot of mixed messaging mm-hmm. because um, I have relationships with, um, with sustainable farmers who look at um, an impossible burger or a lab-grown piece of meat that is you know, increasingly becoming scientifically yeah. viable, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and who hold that up and say, well, wait a minute, we've gone from a whole food to a processed food. We've gone from something that mm-hmm. if you produce it can sequester carbon into the soil and that can help to um, to, to just do all these other regenerative agriculture benefits. And now we've swapped this for a highly processed food that is very soy-based. And so I, I hear that argument. And then I hear the other argument, which is, well, wait a second, we're giving a plant-based protein to folks who might otherwise um, never have thought that there's something better than the factory farm piece of meat. And well, wait a second, now we can go into a major grocery store uh, a major restaurant chain or something mm-hmm. like that and get a plant-based option and we're ruling out a whole bunch of the cruelties and injustices that come with an ethically sourced meat so isn't that better so i hear both sides there um honestly for me on this one it really just comes down to two things it comes down to as an individual what how are you trying to eat what are the values that are most important to you and then the other thing is as these alternative the alternative you know quote meat space mm-hmm. evolves how do we make sure that that doesn't compound the problems that we already have in corporate agribusiness because if you know big impossible burger becomes our next like big ag you yeah. know we have a problem there too because in the end we should have many farmers on the land with wealth in rural communities with wealth staying in communities with local food systems and if we get to the same corporate end point here we still have a broken food system so that's my what, that's my two cents in there what what level of frustration do you need to get to sarah to have an outburst you seem so peaceful and kind and you're working on this thing where like even like I, I like even just talking about it over the last hour I'm just like oh god like sh- she's right what are we going to do about it and even like my frustration level today has like crept up and down yeah. maybe Sean can answer this question better like when does Sarah lose her cool <laughs> what does it take um <laughs> so like, I, I've been on the wrong end of that. Yeah. <laughs> Go for it. I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's. I don't. I don't know when she loses her, her, her. I mean, I think right. We're all. You you get frustrated with this. You get frustrated with this issue all the yeah. time, and, and, and the problem. And it, I think the thing that's interesting is. All of us can go really quickly from frustration to empowerment. The difference between those two ways of feeling is not a huge, as big of a gap as we think. From feeling totally frustrated for a problem to feeling like empowered that I can do something about it, 
And so I just think that we all, you know, I, I think Sarah probably fluctuates between that all the time, right? There's times where you feel frustrated and there's times when you feel pretty empowered and probably all of us, whenever we think about these issues, kind of fluctuate between those two gaps. And I, I don't know, I mean, you, you can you can jump in, Sarah, with what you think, but I, I think the, the, the way to get there is just by taking some steps, just by moving along that process of, of trying to take a couple steps on these issues, you kind of move pretty quickly into the empowerment camp. Yeah. But frustration is not always a bad thing, right? We should be no. angry. There's big problems in the world. If we weren't angry, <laughs> yeah. that would that would be a problem would, if yeah. we weren't ac- actually angry at what was going on. I, and I ask because growing up, I was very I was a very emotional kid. I would lose my cool really fast, but also like be the happiest kid like the day after and like like anytime we're having fun, like be the guy that's jumping up and down. And I, growing up in my adult life, I realized I didn't like that mm-hmm. being able to swing from one end to the other so extremely um and i liked i liked having a certain level of control Mm -hmm. um so to see you tackle on this huge issue but always having a smile on your face at the same time there i think there's something valuable for me to learn and i it's like again like that's it's just a part of you too it's not something that you probably have to think about but if you (laughs) if if but if i stop you and make you think about it sure what do you tap into? Like, what is there something that I can do too? My mind goes to three different places. First, I think about like for me, the goal is to cycle from um, festering anger to productive anger as quickly as possible. Yeah. I can give like a brief example. I took a um, an economics class this last um, semester that was an an ag economics class. Oh, nice. Um, it was really interesting. I learned a ton. It's also taught um, with the philosophy of food should be cheap. Food should be safe. Food should be part of a corporatized industrial global supply chain that ignores a whole bunch of other problems in yeah. the food system. And I remember one day, um, professor who is a really nice guy, but also like trained in and works in, you know, corporate industrialized ag, um, did this this uh, discussion in class about how factory farms were trying to take pictures of chickens' beaks to see if chickens were smiling. And as long as humans perceived that the chickens were smiling, then it must be a humanely raised chicken. And I sat there in class seething, mm-hmm. seething that that an issue as complex as humane treatment of animals could be boiled down to this, like... Uh, Oh my goodness, like you're gonna. This is like me saying, like, if my dog's face looks happy, the yeah. dog doesn't have an infection, or like, it got boiled the dog down to like is a being treated first well. grade photo project. Oh my goodness, and so I was just sitting there, like, seething. And then also, wait, this is the man that is supposed to teach us about ag economics who's instilling this type of worldview mm-hmm. into other students like me who are gonna come out and then go work for corporate ag and then perpetuate these problems over and over again. And I think I got home and just like went on a rant to Sean. Sean was <laughs> Punching holes like... in the wall of the house. Ruby on a couch, lit a couch on fire. Man, that was... Oh, now I remember. You asked me. I forgot all about that. But I'm pretty sure I came home and I was like, listen to this thing that happened and and just vented because I was as anger. You know, it was just anger. And in that moment, that's 
unproductive anger. That's yeah. just me being angry. And there's a time and a place for that. But if I just sit in soothing in, in seething anger for a really long time and don't cycle out of that into, okay, well, let's look at the root issues here. How can I think about my work in greener pastures to get to the root of that issue? What can I do tomorrow to get that done? What's the first agenda item I can put on my Monday morning schedule to address that? Like, that's the productive anger part. Like, mm-hmm. that's that's the part that makes me, like, Maybe just like show up as I am today, like motivated, smiling, excited, hopeful um, to like move, move quickly into a place of, okay, how do I productively push forward? And then the the other part of things that come to mind are um, like self-care and organizing work. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's so, and I've... I've been in this trap myself of, you know, feeling like you have to solve every issue and it's all your responsibility and you're not doing enough and you need to be doing more. And there's also balance. Like you need to take care of yourself and getting sleep and getting exercise and eating healthy food and having time for friends and having time Mm -hmm. for rest and having time where you put your damn phone down and you just like enjoy the present moment um, helps me to have that that reserve of positive energy to um, come clear-headed and optimistic and focused to my work and just to the day, yeah. just to life. I love that. Um, and then I think I said a third thing, like the third thing that I think of is um, like we have a choice of how we talk about things mm-hmm. and we can talk about things in the negative and we can also choose to talk about things in the positive and mm-hmm. I think this comes down into my work in Greener Pastures too. Like if you go onto Greener Pastures Instagram or Greener Pastures website, um, you'll see no negative, sad, scary, blaming, shaming, guilting images. Mm -hmm. You'll see um, beautiful, inspiring, heartwarming examples of what the future of humane, sustainable agriculture will look like. And that's a choice. Mm -hmm. It's a choice to, do you want to dwell on the bad or do you want to dwell on the good? And I'd rather dwell on the good while secretly working to undo all the bad. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, I think... I'm looking at the clock too, and I want to respect you guys' time. But like, thank you for doing that and approaching it the way you do, because I am I am not that person. <laughs> I'm just like so grateful that we have superheroes like you both doing what you guys do. So I want to say thank you for making the world a better place in a positive way. I think that's the only way you can do it. Like that's why I get upset when I get to a level of frustration. I'm like. Well, I'm just going to tell them that what they're doing is stupid <laughs> and like that's my approach. And so like that's it's just not it's, I know it's not the right way. You're so. doing a lot more than you're, you're more saying. Than yep. Yeah. Yep. All right. So we're going to end this thing in a fun way. Right? I think so. Okay. I don't know. We changed change formats. <laughs> we used to so. do this at the beginning, but it was like 30 minutes until we got into the topic of the day. So we're going to end the show in a fun way. Uh, are you ready, Dasa? I think so. Okay, go. Got your music, too. Oh, that's that's my jam. I requested this one. Thanks for picking it up. Uh, all right. So if I have this right, I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Yeah. Well, these are the old lightning round questions. Oh, why didn't you say that? This isn't lightning round music. That's why I'm all thrown off. Just have fun with it. Okay, cool, cool. All right. So here we go. Uh, I'm going to jump into a couple of these, and please feel free both to chime in and answer. Um, would you rather have... A cat's body, but a dog's brain, or a dog body and a cat brain. I love questions like this. Perfect, because you're in luck. Dog brain, cat's body. Yep. I'm in the same boat. All right, good. I like both of you. Um, <laughs> Agile and friendly. So let's say, let's say you can pull up a stat sheet about your entire life. Pick three stats you'd want to know about your life. Things like how many miles you've walked, or how many. 
pages of a book you've read, something like that. I'd like to know how many individual raisins I've eaten because it's a large wow. number. Large number. My success rate on parallel parking, my, ha- my percentage <laughs> of how um, how many turns I need to get to successfully parallel park because I'd be in like the 99th percentile. Awesome. Um, oh, of bad people. parallel. No, good. Oh, good, okay. good, okay. good, good, good. Okay, that's what I mean. <laughs> 99th percentile. Do you like prunes? I like all dried fruit. Really? I eat dried fruit. <laughs> you like until apples? Until the cows come home. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Nice. All right. Uh, I'm going to skip the next one. Um, Ooh. Was it spicy? <laughs> it's the bicycle, bicycle helmet one. I don't okay. want to get into that one today. Um, how oh, much no, do it? I want to hear Sarah's response. <laughs> okay. Bicycle helmet. Yeah, so... <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> here's the theory. Uh, a situation. You're in the middle of a field. Uh, I give you a baseball bat. And then I unleash an army of eight-year-olds coming at you, all wearing bicycle helmets. How many do you think you can take out before they take you down? <laughs> it's We can cut it out if you don't want, because this said not safe. I don't know how it <laughs> How how many eight year olds could I take out? Yeah, you got a you've got an aluminum bat and they've got basically bicycle helmets. How many can you take out before they overwhelm you? So it's like a I horde of eight year olds. Take them out. Yeah, see that's what I'm saying. Yeah, like, I don't I don't want to ask because I, I need the answer. All of them. I, just, I just wanted to know the number. All, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Balance in our marriage. Yes, there yes. we go. Uh, <laughs> Sean's buying a bicycle helmet on the way home. Um, how much money would it take for you to never read again? I hate this question. I love this question. I hate this question. It's like $5, Bob. No amount of money. That's what I'm no saying. No amount of money. Like five, five, 500,000. 500,000? I could do a lot of good. Yeah. But like never read a text? Like no sure. interaction? He doesn't no even want cell phones anymore. Yeah. But yeah, 500,000? That's I could do a so lot of good low. money with that. And I could read to him. Is, that, is there a loophole here? No, that's that's fine. Okay. It's He's not reading, but that's that seems really low. <laughs> I need to have a... This is not the right time. I thought about this question like in the shower and I'm like, cause like everyone has a number like 50, 50 million. Like I just, I'll just, I'll just buy a way to read, but like that doesn't take into consideration the logistics that you have to work through the emotional connection that you have to have with the person. I'll stop, but we can talk about Thanks. this. Um, all right. Uh, let's see here. Would you rather lose half of your hair or half your teeth? Half of my hair. Hair. Okay. It's on its way out already. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Um, you can either become half of your current height or double your age. You got to pick one. <laughs> That's the most unusual question. They are. Double I've my age. Ever, um, and increase my height. <laughs> Ooh. Um, I take half of my height. I want the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. a good answer. Uh, let's see here. Now, you both seem smart, so this could probably be really easy. Uh, I give you one year in jail, or I give you a Rubik's Cube, and you've got you've to solve that Rubik's Cube. Can you do that in less than a year? You can either... So that, sorry, I rephrased that wrong. I'll give you a Rubik's Cube. You're in jail until you solve it, or one year. Which, which one do you think you could do first? Would you just take the one year, or could you solve it? It takes you a day to solve the Rubik's you Cube. It, you have to stay in jail until you solve it. Yeah, that's right, the thing. Yeah, right, right, right. And this is just traditional, the nine right. by nine. Yeah, yeah, just a normal right. Rubik's Cube. See, I'm terrible at them. I would just take my time. No, I think you could do it. Really frustrating. But, it, ooh, that's a hard one. See? I, it might take no. me a full year to do it anyway. It won't. But if it was the only thing I was doing, <laughs> yep. I think I could figure it out. Yeah, so I'm too. going to, to take boldly the cube. take the cube. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll take the cube. It's probably the right answer take the cube you guys i think <laughs> yeah. knowing you guys feel great even if it was like two years i feel really <laughs> <good>. <laughs> excellent uh let's see here uh biggest pet peeve 
bacon eaters. <laughs> People breathing loudly <laughs> into mics. Um. <laughs> I don't like the sound of people chewing cereal. Yeah. Cereal specifically. Yeah. Cereal. There's something about the milk and the cereal. Oh, chewing wow. cereal. So if like I was having a salad and it was like crunchy. That would be fine. But, okay. the but if I was eating a steak and it was super, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the last one really, we kind of touched on this earlier, but just a favorite vacation. Oh, yeah. That we've gone on? Yeah. That we would. Go no, on. you're just your favorite one in general. We've already kind of touched the forest. Well, uh, when Sarah and I, Sarah and I quit our jobs um, after we'd been dating long distance for a year and uh, drove across the country for six weeks, and that was it. It was awesome. We went all up and down Northern California. We went through the Southwest, South, up North. Yeah, that was awesome. And a couple years ago, we went to Chile and went to Patagonia and Valparaíso oh, and Santiago, nice. and that was. So awesome. Sounds nice. The California trip, it's not, it doesn't even sound like it's the the location per se. It was like, you know, like that's when you guys finally made the move. We did the whole yeah. cross country and then figured out where we were going to move to. It's not yeah. the destination, it's, it's the journey. journey. Yeah. Mm, nice, dude. That's beautiful. That's poetic. You wanna, right on right on cue, too. You want to throw out <laughs> one more? Are we done? I mean, we could ask hamburgers or hot dogs, but I think I know the answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. You want to get out of here, Dawson? Yeah. You ready for that, too? I think so. We should just record this. I don't have to do this other time. But uh, anyways, make sure you connect to Quality Under Pressure on Facebook and Instagram at Quality Under Pressure. Follow us on Twitter at QUP Podcast. And uh, send us an email. We haven't had one in a long time. Just at uh, QualityUnderPressure <laughs> at gmail.com. We'll catch you next time.